Hello and welcome to The Wish Podcast. I'm Sean Kaplan. And I'm Grant Bush. Today we're excited to be chatting about rehabilitation of the knee with David Lasher, who is a physiotherapist. David studied physio at WITS and got his honors in exercise science from UCT. David has extensive experience in sport and orthopedic physio. He's worked as a team physio for a number of different high-profile teams and sporting codes, including Bafana Bafana, the UAE men's soccer team, the SA men's hockey team, and 15 years with the Lions rugby team. David has also been a partner in Lasha Speechy Davidson and Partners Physiotherapist for 24 years. So David, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this evening's chat. I'd like to start off with one of the most common knee injuries in sports, and that is injuries to the anterior cruciate ligaments of the knee, also known as the ACL. Most sportsmen and women opt to have surgery as a management for this. But return to play timeframes, they seem to differ between different sporting codes and even between players. What factors should clinicians consider when discussing timeframes and return to play goals with their patients post-surgery for ACL? Okay, that's a really good question. And, you know, when we're looking at timeframes of ACL rehabilitation, I'm going to take us back to when I first qualified. I think Moses had probably just parted the sea. It was quite a while ago. <laughs> and what we were doing in those days, I'm talking about the early 90s, we were basically starting to go into the accelerated rehabilitation protocols. And how those came about was that surgeons found that patients that were uncooperative with the physio treatments or the protocols that they had started doing their own things and started doing a lot more than we were allowing them to do. And a lot of these patients were doing way better than the patients that we were taking very slowly through the rehab. So we started then adopting these accelerated protocols where it was at that stage stated that it's very safe to get people back at six months. And what we even found was that some people were trying to push that even faster. So there'd been cases of top sportsmen who made it back within five, uh, five to six months. And I think those were major exceptions to the rule. What's happened now is that we've had quite a big swing back to slowing down the rehabilitation protocols. And there was a groundbreaking sort of study that came through um, that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016. And they, they put it forward as the Delaware Oslo ACL cohort study. And what they did was they took 106 patients who participated in um, pivoting sports and they put them in this two-year um, prospective cohort study. And their findings were, were quite amazing because the first thing that they found was that anyone who returned to a level one sport after an ACL reconstruction had a fourfold increase in re-injury rates over the two years. But what was probably the game breaker there was that they found that the re-injury rate was significantly reduced by up to 51% for each month return to sport was delayed until nine months after surgery. And after that point, they found that there was no further risk reduction observed. So therefore, I think the thinking generally then shifted back to let's rather wait for the nine months. And then obviously with patients who have passed all their tests, let them go back. So when I get my, my athletes in, and they're going to be participating specifically, we're looking at sports they're going to be involved in, in rotational movements around the knees, so your soccer, rugby, hockey, basketball. I'm putting them at the onset and saying this rehabilitation is going to take anything between 9 and 12 months to get you back on the field. 
And in fact, the longer we take and make sure you reach all your goals, the better things are going to be for them. They also found that in these studies, 38% of those who failed their return to sport criteria suffered re-injuries versus only 5.6% of those who passed. So therefore, it's really important that we explain to the patients that we are going to give them some tests towards the end of their rehabilitation. And if they fail those tests, we cannot let them go back on the field. And I know um, I'm in a fortunate situation because I work in, in both centers with really good biokineticists that can assist in doing this testing. But I know out there there's a lot of physios who have smaller practices and want to follow the, the patients all the way through the rehabilitation, which is a great thing to do. So the tests that have been put out that people look at as criteria are looking at your muscle strengths. And we want to get on the dominant side, um, uh, less than 10% difference between the left and the right. Whereas on your non-dominant, it could possibly be less than 15%. We're also going to be looking at your neuromuscular um, balances. If you have access to a Bidex machine, you would use that. Whilst in simple ways, we can just use the star excursion. And then also, this is where they bring in the hop tests, your single leg plyometric jump tests, you know, the, the single leg hop test, triple hop test, triple crossover hop tests, your timed hop tests, your drop test and step down tests. And what we want to do there is also, we want to have the difference between left and right within a 90% ratio. I hope that sort of gives you an idea of what I do with the athletes. And as I say, Specifically for different sports, I may add other things in. So if there's a lot of jumping, landing, and rotational, like as in basketball, you've got to incorporate that kind of testing into your final phase, leading them back to the field tests. No, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, and David, when speaking to surgeons, there are a number of different surgical approaches to repairing an ACL. Graft sites could come from the hamstrings or the quad muscle or the patella tendon. And in the States, they do a cadaver graft. I think that's the graft that Wade Finikak had. Do the different graft sites for surgery make a difference to a person's rehab? So another great question. Yes, definitely the different graft sites are going to make a difference. So when we're talking about taking the graft from the, from the individual themselves, there's probably three main sites that we see. There's the patella tendon, which is a bone tendon, bone graft. We've got the hamstring and gracilis tendon. And then we've got the quadricep tendon. We don't get to see many cadaver um, grafts in this country. I'm not sure if it's just that we don't have the labs to prepare it, but uh, maybe that's a discussion you can have with the surgeons themselves. When we're looking at a bone tendon bone graft, the advantage of that graft is that there's no restriction in hamstring. So we can start quite early on and bring the hamstring into rehab. Because down the line, we want to make sure that we have a knee that is not quad dominant. If a knee is quad dominant, there has been incidents where that has shown that it will lead to possible re-ruptures. So that is the advantage, and we can start doing hamstring work quite early. Whereas with a hamstring tendon graft, we have to restrict our hamstring uh, rehabilitation till possibly after six weeks. So from that point of view, it's advantageous to the bone patella tendon graft. However, there are problems that arise with that graft. And what we saw was initially when the surgeon started doing the surgeries, and I'm talking, as I say, around about 25, 30 years ago, most of them were doing the bone patella 
bone graft. And what we find is that you can have a problem with contractures around that site. And you can also get a problem of where your donor bone has come off, um, that they can become hypersensitive, you can have fractures. So there were various um, co complications. When they first started doing the hamstring tendon grafts, the biggest worry there was the fixation. And that's been perfected now. So at the moment, what we're saying is that if you're going to do a bone tendon bone graft, you've got the fixation of bone is going to be quite solid. And in a way, you can actually load that knee up a little bit quicker than the hamstring tendon graft because we're just waiting for incorporation of the graft into the bone. However, as I say, with the, with the newer fixations, that's pretty good. So from a rehabilitation point of view, I think with both or with any um, type of uh, graft site, we are going to make sure that we start off with a fundamental phase of getting full extension. And that, as you all know, is if we don't get that full extension, we struggle down the line. We want to get that quad lock. And that's sometimes where when they take the quadricep tendon, we struggle. We struggle to get that quad activation. So from the early stages, it's more a matter of looking at your graft and just taking care of the site that it was taken from. Once you've moved past the six week mark, I think you can pretty much run everything the same. I'm not sure if you also wanted to discuss timing of the grafts healing and rehabilitation on that side. Do they differ depending on the different area where the graft was taken from? So with regards to basing your rehabilitation on the graft healing rates, if you look at the bone tendon bone graft, you're getting bone fixation quite quickly, getting blood vessels into that graft, and you've got still the, the tendon is attached, so it's going to get blood vessels growing through maybe a little bit quicker early on. But what we have to understand with any of these grafts is that at some point, the actual graft itself is going to die and the body is going to then revascularize it and develop a stronger graft. The patella graft loses 50% of its strength from where it was to what it's finally going to be. Whereas with the hamstring graft, they're saying that the hamstring graft is almost double the strength of a normal ACL when they put it in and then it drops down by 50%, which will be 100% of the ACL graft. The dangers early on in our rehabilitation, and that's why we try and avoid loading that graft very early on. So in other words, with open chain type exercises where there'll be a shift in it, is that in the early on phases, you've got the danger of the attachment coming off. Whereas as we go further, so from the six week to 12 week mark, where you're in that proliferation stage, they basically saying that this is when the graft is at its lowest mechanical strength. And that is where we don't want to put too much stress through that graft because we can get some stretching out in the mid substance. And the whole idea with the graft is that they've done an isometric graft where they've got it perfect length. We don't want to make that longer. Otherwise we are almost losing out the surgery, so to speak. So that's why we limit up until three months, generally still considering I would limit um, heavy open chain type work and any rotational work. Great. Thank you. That was fantastic. I'd like to ask about something a little bit less serious, and that is patellofemoral pain syndrome. Now, when a person has anterior knee pain and they come to see you, how do you assess them and what helps you to make a diagnosis of patellofemoral pain syndrome rather than one of the other differential diagnoses like patella tendinopathy or chondromalacia? Patellofemoral pain syndrome is probably one of the 
for me, one of the more complicated and quite a difficult diagnosis to make with one specific test. It's not like an ACR where we're quite lucky, we can do a good Lachman or good pivot shift and we're going to get it. Here, it's more an umbrella term for any anterior knee pain. And we've got to do a process of elimination to sort of find out what is left behind that is possibly, and hopefully your, exa your ex um, examination has been good enough to know that that pain is coming from the patella or surrounding structures. So what I would do is definitely the same as I would do with most assessments. I would do a good subjective because often that's going to give us some idea of the nature of the pain. We want to know what's aggravating it or what's relieving it. Um, is it an overuse or overload uh, type injury? Often what I do is if it's something that's more increased by activity, you start thinking that possibly it's a biomechanical type contribution to it. Or if it's after activity, then later then it could be inflammatory. If it um, improves with exercise, we start thinking possibly more tendon or muscle because once it's warmed up, it feels better. So subjectively, often these patients are going to come in and they're just going to say that they get pain on the anterior part of the knee. But just remember that anterior knee pain coming from that area could be anywhere around the knee. You could even have posterior pain coming from the knee. So don't eliminate anterior knee pain the moment someone points to the back of their knee. You know, I start looking at the structures, I look at the biomechanics, I look at uh, the Q angles, I look at the patella, how it sits, is it, is it a patella altar, um, is there a lateral tilt? Because often if I'm seeing those things, it starts leading me to try and look at those structures and see if they could possibly be the cause of the pain. Uh, in patients with very hyperextended knees, your, your rotations of your tibia, your genoverum and vulgum, Obviously, we want to look at muscle work and how the muscle activation. So I would be doing some functional testing, some step downs, some hop tests if need be. Uh, then I also look at, so if I'm now thinking that possibly it's related to the patella itself and the, the positioning of that patella, I will look at, is it caused from maybe a foot that's collapsing into a pronation or is it something that it's a collapsing pelvis, weaker alignment? Because we know that for the tracking of that patella, we've got to look for, from the bottom and at the top. So if you've got a, a femur that rotates as you're bending, you've changed the, the railroad track that the patella is moving on. Long ago, we used to first of all focus purely on the knee and just work on trying to do a lateral releasing, uh, trying to get VMO to work. And now we've realized that if we don't look at the top and the bottom, so if you don't support that foot properly, you, you, no matter how much you get VMO firing, you're going to have problems. So to say differentially diagnosing this type of thing, um, you're eliminating things. So you'd look around the knee, you'd look at the, the fat pad, you'd look at the RTB, you'd look at the inferior pole of the patella. Is it a tendinosis? Is it a sending Larsen's Johansson? Uh, is there some arthritis in that knee? You mentioned chondromalacia patella. This is the tough one because chondromalacia patella realistically can only be diagnosed on an MRI and we're not going to have that access often. So I often find that maybe I am treating a chondromalacia patella and putting it under patella pain uh, syndrome and I'm getting the results. So maybe it's a wrong way to say it, but maybe I'm going to group them together in the sense that anterior knee pain could be from just maltracking or it could be actually from some damage to their cartilage. Either way, we're going to try and 
change the tracking to offload that cartilage. With your treatment strategy for something like patellofemoral pain, is it more based on uh, your subjective and objective findings than just a kind of broader approach that you then zone into? So when you say the treatment strategy, obviously once I've made the diagnosis that I, that I think that the pain is coming from the patellofemoral joint, so to speak, or the anterior structures around the knee, and not specifically a patella tendinosis, um, possibly that is leading to some tracking, then yes. If it's the maltracking or a lateral tilt, I'm going to use my manual type techniques, my strengthening techniques, correction of biomechanics when they're moving. So step downs, jump downs. I'm going to use those techniques to try and alleviate the problem. What I often do in my assessment is if I'm thinking it's possibly a lateral tilt or, or that the glide is too far medial or you know, often if it's a Q angle that can be corrected by changing the foot biomechanics, I will do that. I will make a, a medial wedge if I need for the heel just to lock that up a bit. I will strap the knee into a position I see. And if I'm getting a relief in the symptoms, then I'm going to use that as my treatment modalities protocols. So when you're chatting about differential diagnoses earlier to patellofemoral pain syndrome, one of those potential differential diagnoses is a patella tendinopathy. Um, because this is a condition that's almost exclusively concerned with load and load tolerance, the assessment of a tendinopathy is rather different to other musculoskeletal conditions. Can you walk us through your assessments of this condition and what factors you would generally consider? Okay, great question again. So when we're looking for patella tendinopathy, obviously we, we're going to find pain at the inferior pole of the patella or running along the actual patella tendon itself. For me, the important thing is to find out what is the cause. Is it a pure overload or is there biomechanical factors involved in this? Obviously, you also want to know if there's any medical factors. So you would have done a medical history to see if they've got any other factors that could contribute. But if we're going to exclude those and just look at possibly an overload or biomechanical, normally it's a combination of both. They've overloaded with possibly a poor biomechanics. I'm then going to want to reproduce. I want to reproduce the pain. So sometimes patients will come in and tell you that when they, they're actually not sore now at all, but whenever they start training or run at a certain time or do certain jumps, they're going to get sore. I want to reproduce that. So I'll try and get them to do those things in the rooms, if they have to go out, run on the streets, whatever they need to do. So when they come in, I'm going to get a better idea of where it is. And we know that the pain is going to increase with the load with a tendinopathy. Whereas if it's a, a muscle type injury, it can possibly warm up and actually feel a bit better. We also know that it's dose de dependent. So the more they do, they'll normally complain that the more they do, the more painful they're going to be. Um, and that often that pain will, will linger after the event. Uh, generally with the very acute ones, they, they're more easy to diagnose. So obviously it depends also on what stage these guys are in. So if they're very reactive in their tendinopathy, you may find that they're very tender to touch. Whereas those that are more degenerative, they may not even be that tender to touch, but the moment they load it, it's going to get sore. So to try and bring that into, first of all, your diagnosis, and then that also gives me an idea of where they're going to be in how I'm going to treat it. So, do I do hands-on stuff? I do to correct other things. If I'm finding that the patella is tracking badly, if I'm finding that um, I'm not getting activation of glutes, I will use my techniques for that. 
But obviously, we've been shown that tendons don't react brilliantly to passive modalities. They work better on being loaded. So therefore, you've got to incorporate those loadings. And the assessment is going to be used as a tool as to when and where you're going to put them into your program. Are you going to start them with pure just isometrics for pain relief? Or are you going to start bringing in your isotonic type exercises? Um, and then when down the line, or even at that stage, depending where they are, are you going to bring in your explosive storage and release type exercises? And with regards to patella tendinopathy, I think it's very important to establish realistic timeframes with your patients. Now, when you obviously look at a lot of Joel Cook's work, she has very long timeframes. You know, she can send a patient away for six weeks before she sees them again. I understand in the study world, that's often what you have to do. But we've got people coming to us and they want to get better. They want to get back to sport as soon as possible. So it's trying to balance that this does take time, but allowing them to do some things. So working within their pain. And obviously you can use your, your different modalities of using the isometrics to help reduce some pain so they can do some exercise. Also just trying to explain to them that complete rest is not good, but also too much is also not good. Uh, you just want to give them the correct beliefs about pain. Uh, so for me, it's that education around pain. And then also just to keep in the back of your mind that there is a chance that you may have some central sensitization happening, which is when your pain is not tying up with what you're expecting to happen. So they could have increases of pain at certain times of the day when there was nothing that should have caused that increase in pain. Just keep that in the back of your mind. At the same time, it's very important to look at our language that we don't lead that patient into a situation where they start to catastrophize the actual injury. Um, so, you know, don't use terms where we're talking about tearing or jamming or those kind of things. And I think that ties in with most injuries that we're going to do, not just specifically this one. Um, when we chatted earlier this year to Jill Cook, um, one thing that she was saying as well is that even in a case of, of degenerative tendinopathy in the lower limb, um, there's still so much healthy tissue. And, uh, and there's actually sometimes more healthy tissue than when you compare it to a normal tendon. And so even when we see the, we might see these scans and see all this degenerative tissue, it doesn't really matter. We can still load it quite comfortably and confidently without you know, fearing anything. And I think telling our patients that as well is, is important. You know? Just to build on to what you're saying about the language we use and uh, and making sure we don't uh, we don't say things that our patients will then interpret as you know whoa slow down hold back we can actually load them confidently exactly and that's where I was saying the patient's understanding of actual pain and knowing that pain is not the bad thing that we sort of led to believe our whole lives and that's the discomfort and I always try and use that word more so I wouldn't say I want a pain three out of 10. I want a discomfort of three out of 10, just to change their, their thinking. But what you touched on there was a really good point. For me, the one problem is that often we rely too much on the imaging or we think we need the imaging. And as you said, the image may show that there's quite a bit of degeneration, but that tendon is now three times thicker than it generally was. So there is a lot of healthy tissue as you stated. So we, we often send patients with the instruction and sometimes even preempting phoning the ultrasonographer and saying, please just be careful with the language you use because you don't want them to put the tendon on and say, Oh my word, this is the most shocking tendon they've ever seen. 
because that straight away is going to put us in the back foot. So, yeah, it was a great point talking about um, how much tendon is still, still there to use. I'd like to finish off by talking about patella dislocations. What are the intrinsic and extrinsic factors that can put a person at risk for suffering a patella dislocation? All right, well, we know that they are more common in females in the second decade of life. And that in people with lax ligaments, they have a higher risk. So if we're looking at the actual, the patellofemoral joint, we've got the trochlear groove with a higher lateral side than medial side. And in some people, they have a reduced osseous constraint. In other words, that flattening of that lateral femoral condyle. So therefore, it's much easier for that patella to move laterally. If they've got a lot of uh, stronger lateral structures, they could also be pulling the patella laterally. And obviously, that's with relation to recomedial structures. Um, if there's biomechanical factors like femoral or tibial rotations, if there's a pes planus, uh, if there's patella alta, the patella sitting higher, there's more chance of it coming out before it actually engages into the uh, trochlear notch. Uh, if there's a, a hyperextension of the knee, that could put the patella in a position where it can actually come out before, as I said, engages properly. We know increased two angles, which can be from a wider hip, or it could be from the angle of the attachment onto the tibia of the patella tendon. Um, if there's general patella hypermobility, about muscular weakness and imbalance, so VMO being quite weak. Those are, are probably your, your main risk factors that are going to play a role in the patella coming out of its track. An interesting sort of point here is that generally, and for me in my whole career, the patella is going to dislocate laterally and stay out if it's going to be laterally. You may get some subluxing medially, but it's very rare that you're going to get a dislocation medium. When you speak about these, these patients that have uh, increased laxity or patella alta, are there any rehab strategies that clinicians can use to help reduce either the risk of it happening or if it has already happened to prevent it from happening again? Yeah, that's a really tough one because if they've got, obviously if there's a patella alta because there's a tight quadricep muscle, we may have some success in lengthening the quadricep muscle, trying to get that to go down. But if it's because there's just a very long patella tendon, it's very difficult to try and change it. I would still attempt to lengthen the quadricep. Um, if there's tight lateral structures, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, and that's where I do a lot of manual work. I do a lot of um, medial glides, but what I do is I try and do the medial glides with the patient in different positions, not just at full extension. So often in side lying, I will then, um, glide that patella immediately, try and stretch the lateral structures, try and lose, often they, they may have a bit of a, a lateral tilt, try and get that lateral tilt out by stretching out those lateral structures and then activating the medial um, VMO, any structure on that inside. Uh, what we also got to remember is that when these patients sometimes come, they've got a bit of swelling in the knee if it has been a dislocation and you're trying to rehabilitate it. Um, when there is a 10 millimeters of fluid in the joint, VMO switches off. So we've got to try and get that swelling down as quickly as we can. And if loading is causing further irritation, we've got to remember that that's 
a problem. It's not going to, if there's fluid in the joint, we're not going to get VMO to activate. So your main aims all around are to look at what is the contributing factors towards dislocation. So if there are things that we can change, so if it's a foot position and we can correct the foot position, so the tibia stops rotating. If it's a, a femoral weakness, uh, well, as in glute weakness around the femur, getting that to rotate, we can correct that. If it's tight structures that need to be lengthened or weak structures that strengthened, we can work on those. But if it's because the, the lateral condyle is completely flat or the person is extremely hypermobile, unfortunately, we may not have the best success. If they've um, got a, a very lax medial uh, patellofemoral ligament or damaged medial or non-existent medial, it's also really difficult because we've lost that, that medial constraint on the knee. So specifically looking at each patient on an individual basis and trying. And I'm often going to say we've got to try, try whatever we can because sometimes you'll think it's not going to work and you amaze yourself and it does. Uh, one of the other approaches that they use particularly if it's a recurring kind of thing, is surgery. What would lead you as a clinician to suggest surgery over a conservative management to a person who has dislocated their patella? Okay, so my thinking has always been that with first-time dislocators, where possible, I would try conservative management first. And then if there's been a recurrent dislocation, you're probably going to move sooner to the surgery. However, You've got to be very careful with those first-time dislocators because you've got to make sure that there's no osteochondral fractures or any other major injury, substantial disruptions of that patellofemoral ligament. So a really good assessment is important. And for me, I think it's essential if someone has dislocated a knee, at least you've got to get some x-rays because you don't know if a fragment has come off. And if that's come off, surgical intervention is, is, is really important as early as they possibly can. Um, obviously, if it's a non-traumatic dislocation, you may look at factors and decide then, or I may say, if it's a first-timer, I'm going to try conservative. If it's a very traumatic and there's been other damage, then I would probably think more on the surgery side. The one thing that I've seen often happen is that it gets misdiagnosed. So, a person will come in complaining of pain on the medial side. Now, there's not many things that are going to give a hemothrosis. We know ACL is one, fractures the other, but a patellar dislocation can as well. If someone, someone's done a pure MCL with no ACL involvement, the chances of having a patellar dislocation are quite small. So if it's just the medial collateral ligament that's injured, then they will complain of the medial side, but there shouldn't be a lot of swelling. Sometimes because the attachment of that um, medial patellofemoral ligament is around the same area as the MCL, people confuse the two. So don't miss a patellar dislocation and start treating it as a, uh, an MCL. Try and obviously make the correct diagnosis early on. I would also look at if any of my passive stabilizers are completely ruptured. If they're completely ruptured, it has been shown that if we immobilize that tissue, we can get some kind of healing. But I'm not 100% convinced that if the medial patellofemoral ligament is completely ruptured with capsular rupture and possibly even some muscular injury, that it's going to stay into place. Studies have shown that 
the recurrence of dislocation after conservative marriage management in a first-time dislocator is anywhere between 15 and 44%. When we look at activity scores alone, we often find that people get back to normal daily activities quicker than the surgical patients. However, they have more dislocations than the surgical patients. Bear in mind that they tried at one point, and some surgeons probably still do it, if they get the patient early enough, they try and repair that medial patellofemoral ligament. However, a lot of the studies have shown that it's not the greatest success in stopping further dislocations. Um, if there's other factors, as in a flattened uh, lateral condyle, if there's um, the patella tendon is sitting quite far laterally on the, on the side of the, the knee, then, I mean, of the tibia, then possibly you're going to go almost straight to the surgery, surgery things. There was in the Journal of um, Orthopedic Surgery and Research, Zing et al. in 2020, um, his question was, does surgical treatment produce better outcomes than conservative treatment for acute primary patella dislocations? And he looks at a, a meta-analysis of 10 randomized controlled trials. And his conclusion was that conservative treatment may be a better option, uh, may produce better outcomes than surgery for um, activity scores. In other words, they scored quite well. However, he was then concluding that in, in light of the limitations of his research, he felt that you couldn't just make a conclusion that you were going to go straight to that point. Uh, and then the other article in the European Journal of Orthopedic Surgery and um, Traumatology, they wanted to look at surgery versus conservative treatment for first patellofemoral dislocations. And they concluded that the data from their study, they said acute repair of the torn ligaments was no better than conservative management. And that uh, reconstruction uh, of the ligaments may have complications. Well, I've seen some of those complications and I'm not sure if you've seen them, but a lot of these patients struggle with medial knee pain and that can be lasting for quite a long time. The one thing that I think we've got to remember is that when the patella dislocates, that medial facet is going to then come into contact with the lateral side of the femoral condyle. And that often can cause either damage to the cartilage or bone bruising or both. So when that patella is put back and we've got a tight structure holding it medially and we're flexing the knee, we may be putting a lot of pressure through that area of damage on the patella. And that's possibly why some of the patients struggle long-term with pain. So I always say to my patients that you've got to earn your surgery. And that obviously if there are a lot of biomechanical factors contributing to this patella dislocation and we have a completely unstable knee, there's often times when you have no other option than to do surgery. If there's no danger, it may be worth on a first-time dislocator trying conservative management first. That's excellent. Thank you. David, thank you so much for your time this evening. If listeners wanted to hear more from you or if they wanted to get in touch with you, where can they look? So they can look on um, our website, physiosport.co.za. Or alternatively, they can just give me an email on david at physiosport.co.za. Okay, great. Thank you. 
that's all we have time for today. Catch our next episode where we'll be chatting to Professor Romy Parker from UCT about pain.